Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. Welcome also this time to Ben Johnson, a former Liberal Democrat councillor in Southwark with a PhD on the influenza virus from Public Health England and the University of Reading. And Ben is now working for Nature, one of the world's most famous and respected scientific journals, where he's the head of communities engagement and so deep into helping communicate information about coronavirus clearly and accurately. Hello, Ben, and thanks for joining the show. Hi, Mark. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, I guess a good place to start, given you know what you've been doing, uh, is what have you found people most get wrong or find hardest to understand about coronavirus and its implications? I think one of the biggest challenges, and it's not just for the public, but for researchers too, um, is how deadly is this virus? Mm. Um, and, and that's challenging for a number of reasons. And, and linked to that, why do some countries seem to be having a worse outbreak than others? Um, and what I say here is we still do not know how dangerous this virus is. And the reason for that is that working out how dangerous a virus is, you take the number who have died and you divide by the total number infected. One of the challenges is we, we just do not know how many people have been infected with this virus. So really to do that, you need what's called this serology testing, which has not yet been rolled out and which certainly the UK government has been promising for a while. Uh, the test exists um, and it looks to see if you've had a, a past infection to this coronavirus. Once that test is rolled out, we should have a better idea of how many thousands or tens of thousands of people have been infected. But until you have that number, um, you really don't know how many people have been infected. It looks like it's easier to work out how many people have died, um, but actually there's challenges there as well. And this comes to the, the issue of comparing countries, because if you consider if someone's died of pneumonia, the death may be recorded as pneumonia uh, on the death certificate, or it may be recorded as COVID-19. And that affects the official numbers that are recorded. And then each country, somewhat frustratingly, has a different way of recording those deaths. Similarly, if somebody dies, if someone has a hypertension and they die of a heart attack, and they're also positive for COVID-19, uh, in Italy, they will count that as, as COVID-19. In other countries, they may say, well, this was a heart attack of somebody with COVID-19 rather than someone who died of it. So those two factors, that, that there's a lot of, uh, I think, at least in the UK, I think there's a lot of concern that our death rate is higher than other countries, particularly Germany. But the reality is, is that we just, we just do not know. And of course, the more people you test, like in Germany, they're testing people who have mild disease. Uh, Italy and the UK are not testing people with mild disease. As soon as you test people with mild disease, it makes it look like the, the case fatality rate is lower. So I think that's, that's an area where there's a lot of confusion. And the reality is, uh, until we do this mass serology test, we just simply do not know uh, how dangerous the virus is. And on that subtle but important point about the difference between dying of coronavirus and dying with coronavirus, my uneducated assumption in following the news on this has been that that distinction is really important when we're talking about a disease like coronavirus because it particularly hits people who are most likely to have other health conditions and therefore, sadly, might also be most likely 
to die, that it's not a condition that is predominantly hitting, say, young and healthy people, where you think, well, actually, if they've died with it, chances are they've died of it as well. But presumably that, that question about the with versus of is not unique to coronavirus. I guess I'm slightly surprised there don't seem to be any international standards as to how this data should be classified, given that on, say, unemployment, an issue that is massively politically controversial very often, and different governments have often been accused of fiddling the figures because of changing definitions and so on. But we also have organisations like the International Labour Organisation that produces standard data across the world that allows countries to be compared on a like-for-like -like basis. Do I understand right from what you're saying that we basically don't have anything like that for issues like coronavirus? Uh, not only is there no international guidance, there is no guidance within the UK <laughs> or, oh, at really? there, or at least there wasn't, uh, there, there, there may be now, I'm, I, I may be incorrect to that, but at least there wasn't. So when, when I was doing my PhD on influenza, you would have some uh, doctors who would code it as pneumonia and others who would code it as uh, influenza virus. And this was very problematic, even if there had been a laboratory test showing the person was positive for influenza yeah. virus, some would just write pneumonia. And it's really at the discretion of the individual coroner or the individual person uh, who's who's writing the, the medical certificate of cause of death as to what they what they code that as. Um, the issue around comorbidities or people with another disease is, is a really live one for for multiple issues. You're absolutely right because those who are young seem to have almost uniformly mild disease, particularly those who are under ten, and it's clear that age is the biggest risk factor. Another risk factor seems to be hypertension. Um, and of course, hypertension is seen more often in older people. It's also seen more often in men, who there's growing evidence seem to be more, more badly affected. It's also seen more often in Black, Asian and, and other minority ethnic groups. And it's likely one, one of several factors why BANE people seem to be uh, more, bad, more badly affected. On the issue about the difference the differential impact on people depending on their ethnicity, um, which is something actually I touched on with Sundar Katbala on this podcast a couple of episodes back. The sort of the relatively uninformed speculation I've seen has fallen into two possible causes. One is something to do with the structure of communities. So how likely are people to be living in large families in the same property? And, and the like, and a particular concern, for example, at the moment, on the day we're recording it, it's the start of Ramadan, and that will naturally, in normal years, involve large numbers of people coming together for long periods of time. So there's a sort of a, a social potential factor, but then the other possible cause is a more directly biological one. There are some forms of, for example, blood disease, aren't there, which particularly affect Afro-Caribbean communities, that there are sometimes some biological differences. Do you have any sense at this, I guess, relatively early stage of understanding coronavirus, to what extent the impact on BAME communities may be to do with social versus biological? I might even say nature versus nurture. I think at this stage it is more likely to be social, and of course the social impacts the biological. So why is there more hypertension, more high blood pressure in BAME communities? That itself is likely to have social causes yeah. um, around diet, around things like uh, poverty, around the areas people live in, uh, linked to things like education as well. And 
it's worth saying that there's a really nice study from China um, looking at differences within China, different cities, and looking at the death rate. And this is a really powerful study because you remove a lot of the variables between countries because yeah. you're just looking within China. And there, the, the, there's, there's, a, there's a strong correlation, or you know, it's not necessarily cause and effect, but a strong correlation showing that the cities with a higher GDP per head have less deaths. Actually, you know, in a sense, it's, it's poverty or lack of income or lack of health infrastructure or, or a low number of hospital mm-hmm. beds in particular communities that are likely to have an impact here. And they're likely to have an impact within countries, um, between countries, but also between, dif- between different groups. Because for those who study health inequalities, it will be no surprise at all that the, the AME groups are more, worse, uh, more badly affected because they're also more badly affected by things like diabetes, mm-hmm. by things like hypertension. People, people uh, underrepresented minorities are often less likely to go to the doctor. They may have uh, less availability of doctors. They also live, as you say, sometimes in bigger families and also in urban areas. I mean, at the moment, this is a disease of urban areas. I guess one of the surprising things about that point with where co- the relationship between poverty and coronavirus is that although at one level that's relatively unexceptional, that sadly we know that it's very common across all sorts of health issues, that the less well-off you are, the more badly you are likely to be hit. But if you look at the world at the country level, now where has coronavirus particularly hit? It seems to have particularly hit, broadly speaking, richer countries. China, you know, is a country that actually has massively reduced poverty in the last sort of 10 or 20 years. But when you look beyond that at countries like Italy and Spain and Britain and France and Germany and the US, those are some of the richest countries in the world. And thank goodness, fingers crossed, so far, it doesn't really seem to have taken off as a disease, as a problem in Africa, where there are many of the world's poorest countries. How, how do you reconcile the difference in that sense between the, the within a country or you know, within particular communities effect with that broader picture of which countries have been hit? I think there's a number of possible reasons. I think one is, is again, it's a disease of urban areas. And as a general rule, the richer countries tend to have more people living in cities. Another one, which is possible but not proven, uh, is to do with the fact that coronaviruses in general prefer spreading uh, in low humidity. So they tend to spread in winter. Um, and of course, if you look at when the virus initially hit, it was in the winter in the Northern Hemisphere and the rich countries do tend to be in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, there's no clear evidence that the virus is suddenly going to vanish when we hit hot weather, but, it, but it's certainly true of other, other coronaviruses. They, they don't like low humidity. Another possible issue is, is around uh, transport links. Mm. So, you know, the, the, the rich countries are more connected with each other. So it may be that it will spread just as happily in, in the, the, the global south uh, eventually. And then there's another possible reason, which is which it's around testing. So there was, some, there was an excellent study. Uh, well, actually, it wasn't a study. It was an investigative report in the New York Times just looking at excess deaths. So you can just measure the number of people who die of anything uh, in a particular week. And it's a great way to measure. It's used for influenza seasons. You can just measure the effect of a, a flu outbreak by just looking at all total deaths from anything. Um, and you will see a peak. 
And there's large increases in total deaths in countries that are so far not reporting many coronavirus infections. So it's possible that a kind of lack of health infrastructure means that there are outbreaks going on in these areas, but, oh, yeah, but yeah. they're not being identified. Yeah. And it may be a combination of all of those factors, but it is, it is certainly true at the moment that it's affecting um, rich countries more. Yeah. The, the transport links one, I think, is an intriguing potential factor when looking within Europe, isn't it? Because, uh, I mean, in fact, I was asked this on a, um, a webinar with Scottish party members a few days back where somebody was making the contrast between Greece and Britain. And actually, afterwards, I looked up the, as far as we know, with all the caveats that you've just mentioned, relative death rates for coronavirus across Europe and sort of central and eastern and southern Europe seem to so far have come out of this relatively lightly but then I sort of then was thinking about a piece I was reading not that long ago about the most popular tourist places in the world and you sort of think well actually something coming from Asia where is it most likely to spread to probably countries with the most popular tourists venues because that's where there will have been the most traffic back and forth for people and you then think about Paris and London and okay definitely Greece for example has some amazing tourist venues but in terms of where Vista always amuses me the train station uh, that it has for anyone listening who isn't aware of this Vista train station has a whole load of signs in Chinese because it, it, the shopping centre near there is phenomenally popular with Chinese tourists so uh, it, the, the transport one seems very plausible as a potential explanation, particularly, I guess, when you look within Britain as well. And, the, yeah, and the, it's, it's not just, it's, London seems to be particularly badly hit. It's not just the urban areas. It's almost like where the big airports are with the most travel links outside the UK. It looks like that is affecting the, the nature of the, of the outbreak within different countries. For example, the outbreak in Germany initially was amongst people who are young, fit and healthy. And that's because they were skiers returning from the Italian Alps. So the index case in Germany was in skiers who were, who were mildly ill. And because Germany is testing everyone with mild disease, they were identified and they were spreading the virus either with symptoms or without symptoms, because a lot of people have no symptoms and are still infectious. Um, they were spreading the virus to their other young, healthy contacts. So in Germany, the, the virus is mostly being uh, identified in people who are under 70. Whereas in Italy, it's mostly there in people who are over 70. And in Italy, the index case um, was somebody returning from China. Mm. Um, so you can see how the disease is spread. And then, and then of course, once you introduce lockdown, um, the disease doesn't have the opportunity to spread through the whole population. So to a degree, it remains within the group uh, that it initially infects. Um, and similarly, in Iceland, the outbreak there came from people returning from, um, from Italy, from skiing holidays. And do we know, how much do we know about how coronavirus got to Italy in the first place? That is known. It was a Chinese couple um, who visited uh, the Lombardy region of Italy, and the uh, both of them were um, both of them were were unwell with the coronavirus. So now that that is known, there was a study published on that. One of the things that there's been quite a lot of chatter about in the UK, particularly, has been whether younger people are not taking the issue quite seriously enough. Now, part of this, I think, I mean, it, it's just a standard trope in the media, and indeed has been for indeed even centuries about 
people complaining about young people's behaviour. But is there any evidence in terms of compliance with lockdown, except in the UK, that there are particular issues across different age groups and maybe the groups that are less likely to have serious symptoms feel more relaxed about the risk of, of catching it? Um, there's there's no there's nothing published that I that I have seen on that in terms of nothing in the in the scientific literature. I, I think it is a challenge and it's a challenge for a number of reasons. And I think particularly in terms of spread of the virus, um, you know, if you have symptoms um, and you are you know walking around town with a cough, um, I think that that is unacceptable behaviour. If you're one of the you know we don't yet know how many people have no symptoms, but there was an excellent study in Iceland uh, where they tested 6% of the entire population, it's a small country, for coronavirus and of those that tested positive, uh, 43% had no symptoms at all. That is a lot. (laughs) Now of those, some probably will have developed symptoms later on, so they were pre-symptomatic rather than asymptomatic. But if you're walking around, uh, you know, with no cough at all, but you are highly infectious because those with no symptoms are just as infectious as those uh, with symptoms. Then, you know, it's maintaining social distancing that's key, you know, and that's why it's so important for everyone to maintain social distancing. I mean, I think on age, you know, the the evidence is clear that particularly those who are very young um, are unlikely to have severe disease. Again, I think in this Iceland study, they didn't find anybody under 10 in the in the in the random population positive for coronavirus yeah. none at all <laughs> and they did find people under 10 positive in those who are considered more at risk so those who had recently traveled uh, say to italy or to china uh, but in the general population they didn't find any um and so actually uh, <laughs> to be slightly controversial do, is it a problem for children to play together if they are if they are so unlikely uh, i mean we're talking about children under 10 um, if they're so unlikely to get coronavirus and it links to the issues around schools as well. Again, there's a study from the US showing that they, they modelled um, that 15% of US health workers would not turn up to work if they closed schools. Mm. So the impact could be worse mm. from closing schools than from keeping them open because there's no evidence children are super spreaders. Um, you know, they seem to have milder disease. Um, but I think if you're talking about people who are, um, I suppose, my age, uh, late 30s, um, then, yeah, social distancing is, abs- is absolutely key. And, and it really is effective. There's a study now from Italy, a study um, from China, um, showing that as you, in- as you have more stringent measures in place and people have less contact with each other, the virus spreads to less people. So this reproductive number, the R0, yeah. um, goes from above two, um, below two, below one. And in China, they got it down to less than less than 0.5 through those measures. So um, I think it's a difficult one because it also relates to when the outbreak is lifted. Uh, Sorry, when social distancing is lifted. Um, And how do you what do you do then? You can't just allow everyone to go about their lives. Um, And Ideally, I think we need to move to what South Korea has done very well and what China's trying to do now, identifying all those with symptoms and all their contacts. But the challenge there is, you know, people might not want to tell you where they've been all day. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, they might not want, you know, who has access to this information. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a very interesting, challenging 
civil liberties issue here. Um, you know, do you want, the best way to do it is, is through a smartphone app, right? So the best way is that you look at where your phone has been in, in that day and all the people whose phone has been near your phone. Um, you know, who has access to that information? You can think of examples where you may have been going for a job interview. You know, you may not want your employer to know. Uh, you may have been meeting your lover, <laughs> for example. You know, you wouldn't want that information to be made public. Um, but, and, and actually interesting, the technology companies are slightly fighting governments at the moment, saying we don't want to give you access to this information. Um, and it, it's, it's kind of related to the, to the age issue of, how much as a, as, a, as, a, as a nation can we tell people where they should and shouldn't go when the risk is not just to them but is to the is to the broader public and just just finally finally on age i went slightly off the topic circling back to it i think one of the lovely things i've seen in, in southwark is how many young people are volunteering with community groups and food banks and food hubs i i supervise a food hub every wednesday um in in southwark and it's all young people, people younger than me who are out cycling, they're out delivering food, they're volunteering. Um, and actually, I think the fact that they maybe consider themselves less at risk is why they're happy to do that. So, so I've seen a real uh, community, um, you know, community spirit in, in young people here in Southwark. Yeah, that's a really important point about the upside to feeling like you're le less at risk, if that therefore fuels a greater willingness to be a volunteer. You touched on an interesting point about how comfortable we will be with the idea of tracking apps. And yeah, that's one of the routes potentially to relaxing the lockdown is to be able to track everyone better and therefore be able to react swiftly to any future outbreaks. And I think there's a really fascinating, I almost said fun, but actually it's a really serious as well, debating point about would you rather trust your data to Pretty Patel or to Tim Cook? Now, as in, would you rather trust detailed data about where you've been to an American multinational that makes profits or a government department with a tepid record on civil liberties run by quite a right-wing politician? And I think that although I'm a huge believer in democracy and democratic control, I think if you really pushed me, I think I would trust Apple and its track record better than the Home Office. And I suspect amongst, for example, BAME communities who come much more into regular contact with how the Home Office is run in a way that, you know, I'm lucky that I, for me, there that's a relatively distant institution. I, I can imagine that being all the more so. And yet a world in which we, 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 choose an american profit making multinational with you know some quite significant supply chain questions about uh, about its it how it sources stuff from china the fact that we might choose them as the savior just shows what a different world we're in i think in terms of how the lockdown might be eased and what the science points us towards it sounds like from what you're saying ben that it's really all about maintaining social distancing but possibly targeting that more on the most at risk group so it might be relaxing social distancing partly based on whether or not people have pre you know predisposition to particular health issues 
or based on whether or not they've previously had coronavirus and therefore may have some hopefully permanent, though we don't know for sure, immunity, etc. All of those that come with quite a lot of social justice risks as well. You know, like saying, well, look, the old, yeah, if you're old, you have to stay at home, you're not allowed out, but young people are allowed out, would not normally be a, a welcome policy <laughs> announcement. Is there anything that you've seen where the science is pointing towards other possible approaches, or are we just really going to have to deal with some of these dilemmas head on? So I think short term, we need to deal with these dilemmas head on, and, and we need to move to a model of testing everybody with symptoms, however mild, and all their contacts, however, however that is done through an agreement with the tech companies. But in the medium to longer term, there are some uh, promising signs, uh, particularly around antiviral drugs. Mm. So there's a drug called Remdesivir, which is made um, by a US uh, drug company, um, and it's a specific coronavirus antiviral. So it was specifically developed to treat coronaviruses, and it works, seems to work against, against all human coronaviruses. So that would include SARS and MERS, which were these previous deadly outbreaks, as well as some of the common cold uh, coronaviruses. And just, um, just to jump in for a moment to make sure that um, we're clear about what that drug might or might not do, vaccines are drugs that stop you getting the disease this is a drug that if you have the disease it will help you see you through the symptoms and therefore may save your life but you still might be spreading the disease to other people is that right that's exactly right yeah so the 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 two different approaches as you say are, are vaccines which are given to healthy people um, and a vaccine still is likely 12 to 18 months away and that's because you give it to healthy people so it needs to be absolutely safe. Um, the other option is drugs which are given to unhealthy people, so people who have the virus. Um, and this is this is a there's several drugs that are being looked at. Um, you may have heard about hydroxychloroquine, which is kind of related to quinine. There's no strong evidence that's effective yet. Um, some HIV drugs are being tested again. There's no very good evidence they're effective yet. Um, this new drug does look effective so far. So it's been given to some human, um, in some human patients um, with coronavirus. Um, it seems to be helping their symptoms. There's a new study um, published this week, um, which has not yet been peer reviewed, uh, but a kind of early version has been released, which is in non-human primates. Um, so it, um, uh, in macaques, I think, monkeys. Um, and they're, uh, would they give the drug to some and they don't give it to the others and all these monkeys are infected with the with the coronavirus um, and it prevents pneumonia um, in those in those animals so this looks like um, a very hopeful drug and if you could produce this at large scale uh, and distribute it at wide enough then you potentially can st turn this into a, a serious illness rather than rather than a fatal illness. Yeah. I, I think the other things which are which are equally important is hospital capacity. Hmm. So again, there seems to be an, a, a correlation again, where countries or indeed cities which have a higher number of hospital beds per per head have a lower fatality rate, if if you can use those words. So it seems that. Again, the more the more um, the more hospital beds you have, it turns it into a severe disease where where you're intubated or you're or you're on ventilation, um, but where the person um, doesn't die. So expanding hospital capacity um, 
and this drug remdesivir. Um, in the, the kind of medium term um, are also things that will help. But again, you need to do uh, this, um, you need to increase testing as well of everybody with mild disease. And the hospital capacity I, is perhaps the one element that it looks like at the moment will come out with quite a positive story. And there's obviously quite a lot of potential controversy around, for example, in Britain, the speed with which the government reacted, problems over PPE supplies, etc. But the bit that looks like when it's done and dusted and we pick over the pieces will come out with a fairly good story is the speed with which hospital capacity was increased and things like, you know, NHS, Nightingale and so on. I guess there is a risk that once the sort of the dust has settled, there may be some worrying pictures around the number of deaths from non-coronavirus uh, causes that have resulted from people being more reluctant to go to hospital or hospitals being being pushier to try to clear their beds, etc. But that said, overall hospital capacity feels like the bit that we should be worried about least. And I noticed even in, for example, New York, um, where there have been some horrific stories about the capacity of elements of the, the New York health system to cope and indeed the ability of the, the morgues there to cope, that the hospital ship that had been moored in New York to provide extra capacity is about to sail off elsewhere. Um, and again, you sort of think, well, that is not cause for breaking out the champagne, but at least is a slightly reassuring sign that hospital bed capacity feels like the thing that we have managed to get right. I think so. And it's, you know, if, if you're trying to look beyond the outbreak at what, at what, the, what the country or the world will look like in the future, I mean, it will be hard uh, for any politician to go into an election not arguing for more funding for healthcare um, and, you know, more, more hospital capacity in general, um, uh, you know, because it's clear that, 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 that this is what really makes a difference. And, you know, it, it probably makes a difference to a whole host of other diseases as well um, that we're just not aware of, um, you know, what the hospital capacity is like in your area. The number of, of intensive care beds in your area um, quite likely has an impact uh, um, on other diseases as well. So hopefully that will be something positive, as well as, of course, the recognition of, of the essential jobs that all these, all these workers do. Uh, many of whom are, um, you know, not massively well-paid workers. No, indeed, there was. There's some data out from the Institute for Fiscal Studies looking at the pay of key workers versus non-key workers, and overall, key workers are paid less than non-key workers because a lot of the key workers, as you rightly highlight, Ben, are in lower-paid professions. But the thing I noticed as well, and the IFS has pulled out is that that pay gap has actually increased in recent years. The key workers get paid even more or less compared to non-key workers now than they did a decade ago. And I'll include a link to that research um, in the show notes. I think the hospital point is, is an important one about that other potential knock-on effects on our health that you mentioned, because one could imagine a world in which a future government says, look, we need to have emergency hospital capacity ready but therefore what we do is we have emergency plans to build 
NHS Nightingale type hospitals in three or four of the country's biggest conference centres at very short notice. And as long as you've got the plans ready and the money to throw at those conference venues to pay them for having to cancel a whole load of other events at short notice, etc. You know, you can imagine a, a world in which the answer might be to have the plans to expand bed capacity rather than a world in which we actually have extra beds week in, week out. But as you say, the latter will most likely bring all sorts of other unintended but very welcome benefits. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'm sure a lot of people are thinking about, um, you know, you, if, if you're preparing for a pandemic, um, you know, there are some things that you want to have there constantly and other things that you want to have ready to, to switch on a, a moment's yeah. notice. And, and essentially that, you know, of course, it's a political decision because if you're spending money on one thing, um, you're, not, you're not spending it on another. Yeah, so, so I, I, I guess one of the factors that will have to be borne in mind in that is there's a lot of talk now about how, for example, in the UK, the risk of an epidemic was near the top of the National Risk Register and was enough preparation done. The fact that we've had this epidemic, that doesn't reduce the risks of another epidemic, does it? It's, it's the risks are still there. And I mean, let's hope that the next epidemic doesn't happen for many, many years. But it, it's not just coronavirus that we need to guard against in the future, I would have thought. Yeah, you know, it's like if you're gambling, you roll a six on a dice, you're just as likely to roll a six the next time as well. Your past, your past uh, chance does, does not affect uh, the future. And, you know, there are um, uh, hundreds of coronaviruses in bats as well as other viruses. Um, if you, you know, plenty of organisations uh, were warning about the risk of a global pandemic and, as you say, putting it near the top of, of things to worry about, usually above a terrorist attack, um, a global pandemic, whether it be influenza or a coronavirus or something else. Um, and if you look at the, you know, if you look just within my lifetime, um, you know, we've had outbreaks of SARS, MERS, Nipah virus, Pendravirus, uh, Ebola, uh, Zika, um, and others, um, the difference has been is that they have not turned into global pandemics, but they've not turned into global pandemics, usually because either because there's some geographical constraints like Zika is, is mosquito spread, um, or because of effective early intervention. Um, and if you look at those locations which were affected, for example, by avian influenza, yeah. bird flu, and SARS, so in particular, uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Singapore, they were waiting for this. They were prepared for this. Um, and they did uh, mass testing earlier, or testing of everybody with symptoms, however mild, early on, and contact tracing. Um, and they have never really hit, although cases are still going up, particularly in Singapore, but they've never really hit that, um, that high peak um, that plenty of other places around the world have. So it, it you know, that they're, they're, they're all small, relatively small uh, locations, but um, you know, it, it can be done. You, know, you can prepare for this. Uh, and as I say, particularly investment in, in, in testing and contact tracing. I mean, it is easier to do contact tracing um, if you, uh, I suppose, are less concerned about civil liberties. Um, <laughs> it is yeah, much easier. I, um, a couple of episodes back, I spoke with Professor Phil Cowley, who is currently living in Hong Kong. And I think he made the really good point that, similar to the one that you've made, that one of the reasons Hong Kong has managed to respond the way it has so far 
pretty successfully, it looks like, is because of the previous experience of actually a large number of deaths from a previous epidemic. And what that means is, even though in Hong Kong's case, until a few weeks ago, there were mass protests. So there wasn't trust in government. There was suspicion of what the government was doing. And it's only really that previous experience that means people have been willing to say, oh, when the government tells us we've got to stay at home and stop protesting, okay, fair enough, we believe them. You know, it, the transformation in that sense is quite, has been quite remarkable in Hong Kong and the levels of acquiescence has been quite remarkable, driven sadly, but in the end, thankfully, by, by deaths that happened previously, because I guess had they not had that experience, then Hong Kong, given its hugely dense population, would be particularly vulnerable to a really... A really bad outbreak. The, you briefly mentioned terrorism there, which I, I think is really, I mean, it's one of those, from a political point of view, fascinating conundrums about how do you make a case successfully to the public at election time? Because terrorism kills relatively few people. Um, and in fact, in my uh, book that came out earlier this year, Bad News, I make the comparison between the number of people killed uh, by sharks, for example, and the number of people killed by terrorism, um, or the number of people killed by bumblebee and wasp stings and, and terrorism. And yet you don't get politicians demanding action on those other causes of, of death. And for very understandable reasons, and the clue is perhaps in the name, terrorism really terrorises us. But there are these other things, as coronavirus is demonstrating, that kills vastly more people. I mean, on the front page of The Sun a couple of days ago led with the story that pubs might not reopen by Christmas and had a little bubble about the number of people reported dead, you know, that the previous day, which was uh, 583 or so, I think. Um, and you just think, what a world we're in where nearly 600 people dying is not the lead story. I mean, less than 100 people dying in a football stadium tragedy or a train crash is a searing incident that dominates the news for days, weeks, months. You know, um, if you think about the impact on the whole country and our public policy of, say, the Dunblane massacre, you know, all coronavirus completely overshadows those. So I think one of the challenges that, in a way, is an onus on all of us involved in politics is to find a way in future to make long-term preparation against things that cause death on a scale well beyond anything terrorism causes, to make that into something that is a key part of what the debates are at election time and in between elections. Because now, let's hold our hands up. I don't think any previous Lib Dem manifesto has mentioned pandemic preparation. And in that sense, we're in the same boat as every other party. But that's not a great boat in a way with the advantage of hindsight. No, exactly. And it's a real challenge with, with infectious diseases because of the phenomenal success of sanitation um, and vaccines mm. uh, and universal health care. We are not really exposed in in most of, of, of Europe and the US, uh, kind of the, the richer parts of the world, um, to to deaths from infectious disease. It does seem like something that happens happens elsewhere, um, and so and even with the previous uh, you know outbreaks, infections from from animals that went into humans, um, they did tend to happen uh, in other places. But of course, 
that will not always be the case um, and of course was not the case with this coronavirus and it's a similar challenge in a sense or similar reason as to why the anti-vaccine movement is so strong in Europe and the US because unless you've seen someone who's blind because of measles um, or who is deaf because of a mumps infection you think well why should I give my child uh, a vaccine uh, for a disease I've never heard of mm. um, that, that I think perhaps is going to cause some harm um, whereas, of course, in, in other parts of the world, um, they see the effects of these viruses, you know, in, in, in Hong Kong, as you say, they see the effects of bird flu, they see the effects of SARS, so they seem more real. And my hope um, is that through the visible effects of, of, of this outbreak, there will be more understanding and, and perhaps a, a greater tolerance of vaccines in general, um, because you can see the um, the kind of terrible uh, devastation that a, yeah. that a virus can unleash. And one cause of hope, perhaps, thinking about that, is that there's a sort of rule of politics that the public tend to notice far fewer issues and much less that's happening in the political world than political activists tend to assume. So the public don't notice most things that are happening in politics because they're just not interested. But the things they do notice they tend to remember for much longer. So within political parties, you often get members, A, assuming that people, the public have noticed and know all sorts of things that, that actually they don't, but also then members just really get into, oh, you know, that will stop being an issue tomorrow and everyone has forgotten it, when a relatively small number of issues linger for years, if not decades. Think how long uh, the invasion of Suez lasted as a political issue in terms of shaping political views, or the winter of discontent. The winter of discontent was still being quoted in Tory election campaigns a decade and more onwards, or more recently, the Iraq war. Um, that, and, and so perhaps one of the, the sort of the elements of hope in how we avoid similar issues in the future is that this is going to be one of those issues that gets remembered 10 20 30 40 years hence and there will eventually be a point where that will fade but it may be that we manage to re-engineer so much of what we do that the benefits will even outlast the memories i mean my my favorite trivial example is toilet door handles try and use you know think back to when we used public toilets you know think how hard it is to wash your hands and then exit the toilet without reinfecting yourself it, it designed catastrophe and in fairness to any toilet designers listening uh, or sanitation <laughs> engineers you know it, it hadn't been a requirement made of you but that's not how toilets are going to look in 20 years time surely yeah, and, I, and it's 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 a it's an interesting example because the other thing I think a lot about, which is related, is washing of hands. Mm. Nobody nobody knows how to wash their hands properly. I mean, if you know, if you talk to a to a to a medical doctor, they will tell you they have never seen anybody uh, wash their hands properly, where they really cover um, all of their hands with soap and water until now. Mm. And actually, if you can get the whole population of the UK or the world to wash their hands properly, you will see a reduction in all uh, foodborne illnesses, um, as well as uh, infectious other diseases like influenza. And so just teaching a country how to, which sounds so basic, but teaching a country how to wash their hands properly um, could have a have a major yeah. impact on, on, on various, uh, various diseases yeah. in a very positive way.
Yeah, the thing I've realised that I I never really appreciated about washing hands properly is that part of what you need to do is to cover every bit of your hand, including in between the fingers, etc., with soap. That it's almost it's a two stage operation: cover everything with soap, then remove it all with water. And when you have that mindset of right, have I got soap absolutely everywhere on your hand? That's when I, at least, and I suspect I'm not alone in this, realise, yeah, actually, the way I used to casually wash my hands probably wasn't that good. Um, so maybe on that note, we should bring things to an end. But it's been really fascinating talking to you, Ben. Thank you very much for that. I will include in the show notes a link through to the Nature site and the blogs. And also, I found a, a lovely blog post you wrote a couple of years back. I don't know if you remember it, Ben, but titled How Cats Took Over the World. Uh, oh, right. <laughs> so I will include a link to that. Uh, listeners can also find Ben on Twitter at D-R-B-E-N-J-O-H-N-S-O-N, so Dr. Ben Johnson, myself at Mark Pack, and this podcast at Bar Chart Podcast. And if you like listening, please do tell others about the podcast and rate or review it in your favourite podcast app. And likewise, have a look in your app for the show notes where I'll include links for things like the IFS research and several of the other things that we talked about in the show. Otherwise, thank you very much, Ben, and thank you everyone for listening. 